I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, my lovely patrons, and welcome to another essay in the extra. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Format. Within, we have a pretty special study to lay before you guys, and a very topical one at that. As we're coming to the end of the Franco-Dutch War-ish, I felt it would be timely to release this question to the diplomats and patrons of a higher rank so that they can sink their teeth into it and maybe rationalise it and mull it over, considering how far we've come. We ask the question today, after seeing all we've seen from Louis XIV's France during the War of Devolution and the Franco-Dutch War during the last few episodes, whether Louis' foreign policy can actually be judged as successful. It should be said that the answer is not as straightforward as you might think, but the question will take us all over the era and the man's reign, so it serves as a really effective way of wrapping up our coverage of the Franco-Dutch War and concluding what we learned about the Sun King in style. Though it does jump ahead to a later war, we'll examine the 
War of the Grand Alliance, also known as the Nine Years' War, and forming part of the Long War that we'll do for episode 30, I'm sure you won't mind a level of spoilers, so to speak, in our efforts to glean what we can from Louis' policies. Hopefully it serves you as a fitting rendition to the man's reign, and prepares you in some way for what's to come in episode 30, The Long War, which will consume our coverage for God only knows how long once the regular podcast schedule resumes in September. So how does this extra episode work, and why is it split into two parts? Well, mostly because the essay from which this episode is based is 20 pages long, I felt it wouldn't be very digestible if we just threw it at you guys all in one go. So instead, we're going to divide the question in half, in the process giving you guys more food for thought and hopefully positioning you on firm enough ground that you can judge the question for yourself. It has to be said that there's some really interesting sources in here, so if you wanted to go to the Patreon page of this podcast at patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and find the post for this episode, you'll be able to find the essay in its entirety, rather than split in two, in this first episode post. If reading is your thing, by all means, then that's great, but the episode is 20 pages long, so watch yourself. Other than that, folks, I hope you enjoy this, and that you're ready to sink your teeth into this very important question. As always, make sure to let me know what you thought, since I really do love hearing your guys' opinions and views on what I do in these extra episodes, and hey, is it not just a bit fun to make the normal listeners that little bit jealous? Make sure to tweet me, at WDF Podcast, and we can have a chat. As diplomats, it is up to you to represent us to the wider podcasting world, so I hope you know how much I value each and every one of you. In fact, some of you guys should be receiving your merchandise, because I did send off a few, well, 15 in fact, care packages, so yeah, those will be on the way soon enough, and when they do arrive, I hope that you'll tell everyone about it, and make sure that they know that it's great being a patron of this podcast. In any case, let's have at it. Thanks for listening, my lovely patrons, and I'll see you all soon. When Louis finally came to personally rule in 1661, he inherited a France barely removed from almost three decades of continuous warfare. Yet France was merely one cog in this machine of ceaseless strife that had characterised Europe in the first half of the 17th century. Territorial ambitions, religious tensions, the Habsburg-Bourbon rivalry, economic disputes and countless other issues had perpetuated the Thirty Years' War. Although Louis had been born during the concluding years of the wider European war, he matured within a France that was at war with Spain for all of his young life, only making peace in 1659. When France's key minister, Cardinal Mazarin, died in 1661, Louis took the opportunity to declare the onset of his personal rule. Still a young man, of only 18 years of age, Louis remained fixated upon the pastime that had been so commonplace during his youth, war. It was through war Louis believed that he could acquire the glory he desired. 
Indeed, war would provide Louis with some of his most satisfying exploits, triumphant conquests and the distinction of Le Grand. Yet, war would also ruin France economically, spur Louis to make drastic and ill-advised policy decisions, and eventually turn the European continent against him. Louis played a large part in provoking further costly and unwinnable wars against ever-growing coalitions of European powers that remained unconvinced of Louis' sincerity and determined to halt the ambitions of an all-powerful France. Louis' apparent ignorance of these facts is frequent refusal to give ground and his periodically disastrous foreign and domestic blunders add to the picture of a monarch who was out of touch with foreign opinion and who placed his reign in often great danger because of this. Yet by the time of his death, it was difficult to deny that France was Europe's predominant power, even if the costs of achieving such a transformation had been legion. So these next two extra episodes will Past judgment on Louis XIV's foreign policy. The five wars that Louis France became involved in will be examined, as will the notable misjudgments in domestic policy which drew the ire of foreign opinion, such as the 1685 Edict of Fontainebleau. Louis' wrongs, deliberate or otherwise, will constitute the theme of these two extra episodes, and will be balanced against the instances in which he did consider foreign opinion, or where France made gains. Thus, this two-parter has three broad aims. To highlight foreign and domestic events in France, to assess the changing relationship between France's continental rivals, and finally to judge whether Louis' long monopoly over French foreign policy can be considered a success. Historians are agreed that Louis' desire to acquire glory was foremost in his mind at the beginning of his reign. Indeed, such a quest for glory, glory characterised the first two wars of Louis' reign. However, the historian John O'Connor notes that glore cannot simply be translated into English as glory. The reason for this, O'Connor explains, is that glore was thought of as a lifelong quest by an aristocrat, something well above the ambitions of mere commoners. In practice, it meant testing your mettle, rising to challenges and attempting to fulfil your potential. A concern for glore would be ever-present in the Sun King's handling of foreign affairs. Louis XIV was by no means the only European monarch of early modern Europe to view the pursuit of glory in such a way. Not even his contemporaries could present glory as a French disease, since they very much understood the concept and sought after it themselves. France's first foray into war under Louis came against Spain, more specifically its holdings in the Spanish Netherlands, in autumn 67. Louis's forces marched based on what Louis viewed as the failure of Spain to uphold its side of the arranged marriage between himself and Maria Theresa, a daughter of the late king of Spain, Philip IV, by his first marriage. Since a term of Maria Theresa's marriage to Louis was that Maria Theresa would revoke her claims on Spanish lands upon the provision of a large dowry, Madrid hoped that this would prevent succession disputes occurring in the future. Yet this dowry was in fact so large that it was never paid, vintage Spain, and this, as far as Louis was concerned, repudiated his side of the agreement. The Spanish Netherlands were thus his by right of marriage. In the course of this conflict, Louis's armies made rapid progress against the Spanish garrisons, so much so that Europe appeared to be stirring against him. To the shock of his diplomats operating in The Hague and London, 
News emerged in early 1668 of an Anglo-Dutch alliance. To make matters worse, in not-so-secret articles, they threatened that if he continued the war, they would ally with Spain and force him to relinquish his conquests. In the words of the historian Paul Sanino, With the addition of Sweden to this agreement, a dangerous continental alliance had emerged, with the sole purpose of containing any French gains in the future. Nonetheless, some of Louis' advisers, particularly the commanding Marshal Turenne, advocated continuing the war in any case, since he believed he could have conquered the Spanish Netherlands in that year. In the words of the historian John A. Lynn, Yet instead of continuing the war, such European intervention guaranteed a search for peace. Peace with Spain was signed in May 1668, and although Louis is recorded as remaining positive and looking forward to visiting the conquests he had gained through the campaign, he would later write in his memoirs, There, the Dutch, insolence struck me and I came close at the risk of endangering my conquests in the Spanish Low Countries to turning my arms against this haughty and ungrateful nation. Louis' subsequent preparations validate the fact that Dutch interference in his affairs greatly offended him. Almost immediately he sought to first pull apart the alliance poised against France and thereafter prepare for war against the Netherlands. Louis understood the need to diplomatically isolate the Dutch before declaring war, a lesson he had likely learned from the previous war that had warranted such inopportune foreign involvement. The idea that the Sun King would remain in peace, satisfied with his limited gains of the previous war, was at this stage anathema to Louis's character. It is difficult to assess whether Louis had grasped the reason why Dutch diplomacy orchestrated an alliance against him in the late 1660s, or why it had proved relatively easy to entice other powers, even the former French ally Sweden, to join in. Louis's success had frightened the Dutch. Believing that it would be better to have a weak Spanish neighbour rather than a strong French neighbour, they endeavoured to block any further French gains with the pen rather than the sword. Whether Louis anticipated that further French military success would inspire the same fear of France in Europe as had previously been instilled in the Dutch is hard to gauge. Louis's diplomatic prowess and the activities of his ambassadors certainly provided France with a strong position from which to attack the Dutch in 1672. Not only had the English dropped their Dutch alliance by then, but under their King Charles II, they planned to attack the Dutch alongside the French. Of course, we know now that there's a lot more to this story than simply laying out these facts, but even considering the struggles that Johann de Witt endured in the Dutch Republic and their domestic situation, it still has to be said that Louis XIV did inspire a good amount of panic in the Dutch Orangist party who in the end were the ones that really were successful in clamouring for the Triple Alliance. The Swedes, moreover, had been bought by French money and the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I similarly promised neutrality following previous negotiations with Louis over the possible partition of the Spanish Empire owing to Carlos II and the fact that he didn't seem to be long for this world. Thus, we can conclude from these developments that Louis understood the importance of preparing diplomatic arrangements for his actions against the Dutch, but he seems ignorant of the impact his subsequent actions would have on European opinion. If war with France was the last thing that the Dutch Republic wanted, 
War with an Anglo-French coalition appeared apocalyptic. Indeed, the unstoppable French advance against Dutch garrisons that Louis had deliberately led into a false sense of security, alongside the ominous naval support of the formidable English navy that the Netherlands had struggled against in two previous wars, did suggest the Republic's end. The term Rampiar, or Year of Disaster, was coined in the Netherlands to describe the events of 1672. In the backdrop of Dutch military collapse, the mercantile regent party headed by Johan de Witt came to a brutal end as he was lynched by a mob calling for the restoration of the House of Orange at the head of the Dutch state. For the Dutch it was a year of disaster, but for Louis it was the realisation of his triumphal quest for glory. The French campaign was conducted with a level of precision that capitalised upon the months of preparation Louis had set in place. Undermanned Dutch fortress towns were submerged in a swollen French torrent of men and siege machinery. Having captured numerous Dutch fortress towns on the Lower Rhine, the main French army under the command of Condé then swept west across the Rhine into the Republic proper, where an anemic Dutch defence awaited. After capturing Utrecht on the 30th of June, following only two months of war with the Dutch, desperate peace negotiations began. Very favourable terms, including Maastricht and 10 million livres, were offered by the assailed Dutch, and in the face of such desperation, Louis could well have accepted the offer, made a triumphal return to France and felt satisfied in his quest for glory. Yet, as the historian John A. Lynn notes, Louis, a lifelong victim of recurrent bouts of arrogance, overplayed his hand through the July and asked for rapacious terms. Such terms would have left the United Provinces dependent on France. While the negotiators haggled, the situation improved for the Dutch and they finally broke off negotiations. Louis' grave mistake to present terms so pointlessly humiliating, in the words of one historian, would cost his war aims dearly, since as the Dutch desperately flooded the plains around Amsterdam and the French offensive became bogged down, foreign opinion began to sway in favour of the Dutch. Frederick William, the great elector of Brandenburg, fulfilling an alliance that Louis had not dissolved, directed his forces against France in late August of that year, as Marshal Turenne was, as we know, redirected towards the Rhine to halt the great elector's advance. Louis's armies then lost the military initiative. With the coming of 1673, Habsburg unease at the French attack was soon to manifest itself. They could no longer remain neutral despite the previous treaties, while the English Parliament's dissatisfaction with the war and Charles's French alliance in general was a further ill omen for French security. Although Marshal Turenne knocked Brandenburg out of the war in mid-1673, the distraction enabled the Dutch stadtholder, William III, to regroup and refocus the energies of his once scattered armed forces. By August 1673, the two Habsburg branches in Austria and Spain had concluded an alliance with the Dutch to be joined by the Duchy of Lorraine, which had been forced into the war against France thanks to Louis' earlier ejection of its Duke Charles. Combined with the withdrawal of England from the French orbit and the increased strength and confidence of the Dutch, not to mention the collapse of Louis' German bloc and the re-entry of Brandenburg into the conflict, the war Louis had planned to confine had expanded and mutated out of his control. One historian summarised Louis' new position when he wrote that The French, who had isolated the Dutch in preparation for the war, were now isolating themselves. 
With the evacuation of the Netherlands evaporated the original impetus for war in the first place, as French forces had to be withdrawn from the Dutch Republic by 1674 to bolster new campaigns in Spain, Germany and the Spanish Netherlands. Louis did make great territorial gains in the Dutch war, despite the fact that Europe had mobilised against him, and that the war had become the kind of long, drawn-out struggle that Louis's advisers had originally urged him to avoid. As per the Peace of Nijmegen, which ended the war in August 1678, Louis gained Franche Comte and half of Flanders, as it was put then, while he ensured that his Swedish allies recouped their losses, and he also stood firm in the face of renewed English pressure. Louis had, on paper at least, acquired the glory he desired, and he was proclaimed the Sun King, the moniker he is best known for today. Yet for Louis the purpose of war had now changed. He had certainly attained the level of glory appropriate to satisfy his legend and legacy, but another concern now plagued him, that of French security. Having witnessed the exposed nature of the French realm firsthand, the creation of a defensible frontier became paramount, especially along the Rhine. With this in mind then, Louis began to seize in peacetime what he had left out from the war. The fortress city of Strasbourg, the last imperial stronghold in Alsace and located strategically along the Rhine, was captured in the last stop of a series of peacetime seizures of land on the 30th of September 1681, and on that same day, his forces marched into Casale, an Italian fortress over the Alps. Louis' successes continued almost unabated, and by 1683 he was even besieging Luxembourg. However, when it was learned that the Ottoman Empire was at that time besieging Vienna, the decision was made to call off that siege. Louis XIV, as the most Christian king, believed, and his advisers seconded him in this, that it would be somewhat impolitique to take advantage of the situation when the Holy Roman Emperor, a Christian emperor, was under dire threat from the Muslim Turkish invader. Does Louis' hesitation in the face of the Habsburg difficulties demonstrate his awareness of foreign opinion? Louis only postponed his policy of peacetime acquisitions, and when they resulted in yet another war with Spain in late October 1683, he seemed perfectly willing to further his gains in the Spanish Netherlands, leaving the Austrians relatively alone. With Madrid unable then to source allies from the distracted Holy Roman Empire, Louis was free to fight the disadvantaged Spain alone, as he had done during the War of Devolution. The results of such Spanish isolation were stunning French successes, and as per the Peace of Radisbon signed in mid-August 1684, Louis kept Strasbourg and Luxembourg. These so-called reunions marked the high point of Louis's reign, yet the rosy picture painted by Louis's successes on paper doesn't tell the whole story. One of Louis's contemporaries and a loyal German supporter, William Egan von Furstenberg, urged Louis to cease the process of the reunions lest the minor German princes throw themselves blindly into the arms of the emperor and all the enemies of France in the hope of thus maintaining what belongs to them. Furstenberg also noted that although the reunions are grounded in the Treaty of Munster, the manner in which they have been brought about is not quite tenable. John Lynn scathingly noted that throughout this period of acquisition, Louis showed himself unnecessarily disdainful of European opinion, and demonstrated just how far he had abandoned the more conciliatory diplomacy of Mazarin. The historian Andrew Losky described the process of the reunions as 
indiscriminate and an abandonment of the sensible aim of seeking a defensible frontier. Indeed, one gets the impression that while, as Lynn points out, the capture of Strasbourg along the Rhine in Alsace made perfect strategic sense to a French king who had seen Germans invade over its bridges countless times, Louis' conduct was laced with an abrasive arrogance that inflamed those he claimed victory over. Louis' ministers were by no means adverse to the use of force, it has to be said, but some, like Furstenberg in this case, as well as the French economic minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, or his brother Charles Colbert, who had served as the ambassador to Britain, believed that a more delicate method would have been preferable in the case of the reunions. The problem was, as O'Connor noted, that by at this stage in his foreign policy, Louis had so come to depend on threats of unilateral action that he seldom gave much consideration to any approach other than the use of brute force. His tactics were never more in evidence than in the seizure of Strasbourg in September 1681. By 1685, Louis had made great conquests and strategically reinforced his immediate borders, eliminating Alsace, Lorraine, Franche Comte and fortress towns in the Spanish Netherlands as possible threats. France was now secure in its borders and its king was renowned for his military successes, but at what cost? The Marquis de la Faire notes the indelible mark that Louis' original decision to wage war against the Dutch had left, saying... It was never our intention to take Holland, but merely to punish her. A bad idea because we implanted fear and hatred in the hearts of people who, in their own interest, were our natural allies. We caused them to abandon themselves to a leader who had made them warlike, and a republic which, in the state it was in, could never have been a danger to us. But now it has become the strongest of our enemies, and one without which the others were not capable of resisting us. By planning a coalition war in secret against his former Dutch ally, Louis had lit a fire under the United Provinces, a fire that would burn for the duration of his reign and lead to some of the most formidable alliance blocks set against France in her history. Louis's reckless decision to attack the Dutch had created this new European system, in which the two former allies now faced each other as determined foes. The Dutch could never trust the words or deeds of Louis again, Louis' miscalculation and his arrogance in dealing with the assailed Dutch in 1672 encouraged foreign intervention, and as Louis' ministers attempted to improvise in the face of a growing coalition, in the words of one historian, France was not led, but rather stumbled into the first of the great wars of attrition that would help to exhaust the realm by the end of Louis XIV's reign. Louis' later actions in the reunions startled and concerned his European rivals as the distracted Habsburgs dealt with a fleeting Ottoman presence, and the Dutch attempted to shore up the Spanish in the face of a peacetime and then wartime French advance. On paper, then, it certainly appeared as though Louis had favourably impacted France's standing, but his acquisitions, while impressive, came at the cost of foreign opinion, and so long as these actions remained within living memory, there would be less difficulties in the future in forming a coalition against France. Certainly, Louis' conduct after 1685 did not suggest that the Sun King had learned to fear the formation of any coalition whatsoever. Alright, my lovely patrons, this has been the first part of this extra episode, so I hope you'll join me for the second part, which is out right now, where we build up towards the conclusion and assess whether Louis XIV's foreign policy can truly be judged as successful. I hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening! 
and I'll see you all very soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.